Mr. Chambers, I don't wish you to misunderstand me. I am not Miss Farrell's husband, nor her fiancé in any shape, form, or manner. Mm, I see. Her devoted friend. Yes. For five years. Mm -hmm. Her guide, I take it, and counsel. Yes. Her protector. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In other words, Mr. Plunkett, you, uh, you never got to first base. Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1933, and Molly Raspberry joins us to discuss Design for Living. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are here with uh, Molly Raspberry once again. Welcome back. It's great to be here. We are here talking about the pre-code romantic comedy that all other pre-code romantic comedies are measured against in terms of transgressiveness. It's designed for living. Maybe the single most infamous film of this whole podcast, for especially for how it ends and the subject matter it deals with. I think, Molly, I think you're in a good position to describe for us what makes Designed for Living a bit of an iconoclastic movie, to say the least. Well, a part of that is what you just mentioned. It's because it got coded as this pre-code nasty from the Roman Catholic allegiance that became the PCA, the Production Code Association. And so there's like this mystery. There's almost like this like, ooh, it's scandalous. And yes, because it ends like with the ending with the threesome, basically. And every other film after it, every other film that has a threesome is going to be compared to it now. Every throuple, unlike a lot of those other films that take the threesome, it's not a tragedy. It's a comedy. It's a romantic comedy. And it's that much more looser, more heartfelt and romantic side of these types of relationships. Yeah, it's an adaptation of the Noel Coward play of the same title. And the elevator pitch is the same, the, the high concept. So much has changed and we can get into that. But yes, this movie is notable for a lot of reasons. The chief of which is, yeah, it, it isn't the most taboo thing you can cover in a movie. But it does center on this functional three-way relationship between two men and a woman. And just that very fact, I mean, makes it irresistible to pre-code mm -hmm. fans like us. Part of what we love about this era is this kind of feeling like, oh, my God, before the 28-year period where Hollywood was kind of infantilized, you had this? Yes. My God, it's yes. one of those, oh, shit, light bulb moments for a lot of us. Yes, it still scandalizes today. And it's just surprising when you think about the pitch that Noel Coward had for it, where he described it as the story of three people who love each other very much. And that was how he would describe mm -hmm. his play. And it's just so much more than that. I feel like I'm now making like describe your favorite movie in the most boring way possible. It's like it's a story of three people who love each other very much. Yeah, and yeah that's that is the succinct way to describe this movie. It's worth noting to kind of build from the ground up here that the Noel Coward play that this is based off of, Lubitsch is not working with Samson Rafelson, who is the writer who most clearly laid out Lubitsch's usual process of, of adapting works. It's with Ben Hecht, and the, the two of them actually did not get along very well in this production. Eventually, Ben Hecht's kind of way of writing, which was to cloister himself and then come back to Lubitsch with the script in a few days, uh, gave way to Lubitsch's preferred way of writing, which is they meet every morning at 9 a.m. and have very long debates. And for the classic film fans, Ben Hecht is the one who wrote and had co-written, even unscripted, a lot of Alfred Hitchcock's best films, Notorious, Strangers on a Train, Scarface. Shadow of a Doubt, Scarface, yes. 
he adapts this place so well, so well, considering he and Lubowitz did not get along very well. The whatever rift existed between Ben Hecht and Lubitsch at this time is minor compared to how outraged Noel Coward must have been. <laughs> and, uh, and, I know, I know. And what Lubitsch did at his place, I actually had the distinct privilege of listening to a 1976 BBC radio play version of the Noel Coward play to prepare for this. The high concept is the same, but the characters are so different. How the characters express themselves are different. They're not American in that they are, they're not not American, but their nationality is entirely left up to the audience to decide. Yes. Unlike this film when they're you know, American, really American. But the big, big difference is that the Noel Coward play reads like a Noel Coward play and that all three characters mm -hmm. are verbose. They're they're flowery in their speech. Yes. They go on and on philosophizing about their feelings and mm -hmm. it works great. I mean, I, I thought it was pretty terrific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Lubitsch's decisions in, he only kept one line from the script uh, of the play and basically torched everything else and turned three very verbose people into Americans of far fewer words and far more yes. unmitigated emotionality. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Just more relatable, I believe, as well. Yes, absolutely. Howard also played Leo, who is Frederick Mark's character in yes. the movie, who was renamed Tom to be more American. And his the other co-stars, Lunt and Fontaine, which Broadway nerds, you know that the Fontaine Theater exists because of that. They were his closest friends, and there were hints that Coward was having an affair with the male Lunt, I believe it was. So there was mm. kind of that idea. So there was that subtext going on, which I think was excised a little bit from the movie, but you could still kind of see that homoerotic subtext between Tom and George. But yeah, and also Noel Coward was a very out man. You think quintessential British dandy who's very gay, it's Noel Coward, is probably going to be popping <laughs> your head. The subtext is so interesting because any uh, mm -hmm. Coward play, it really invites the reading that this is not just, mm -hmm. if we're talking about configurations between three-way polyamorous relationships. Yes. In this case... <laughs> Where she's going to switch between them, it's like, no, they're going to switch between each other. Yeah, in the Noel Coward play, it, it's never explicit with that, but it really invites that reading. And the Lubitsch film... Yes. Uh, Lubitsch film does not in that way. You can... It, it tends towards mm -hmm. the reading that the uh, George and Tom characters played by uh, Gary Cooper and Frederick Marsh are very, very good, devoted, lifelong friends. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> it, do, it does nothing also to preclude the reading that they at some point, uh, you know, have had a romantic angle to that relationship. Which is kind of hilarious because I read that Lupe Velez, one of Gary Cooper's lovers, claimed that he lived with this other gay actor. I can't remember his name, name, and they actually dated for a little while. So that's fascinating because you don't think of that was Gary Cooper. You just stare at him. He's so tall and so broad and just so, so dark and handsome. And you think to yourself. That is a man's man right there. Mm -hmm. So so that's also I'm not sure if Lou Witch knew that or if it was like Hitchcock always knew with his character actors like Perkins and those people that, oh, I know you're gay and that would be perfect for my movies, that sort of thing. So but <laughs> it is fascinating to think about that subtext. But of course, I believe that the guy who played Max was actually a gay actor. Edward Everett Horton. Yes. Franklin Pangborn, who played the producer, the Broadway producer, was gay and was told to play his role like that. So hmm. Lubowitz knew that subtext was going to be there because it was already there for the play. So he's like giving little hints mm. about it in this version, which I kind of see a bit of the Lubowitz touch 
so which I'll go into further detail about when we discuss more of the dialogue. Yeah, there's so many ways to get into this, but I think maybe this mm-hmm. is one of Lubitsch's most structured films in the sense of there are three very clear acts to this movie. And again, I mean, mm-hmm. no coincidence, those three acts roughly map out to the three acts in the stage play, yep. with the exception of in the stage play. By the time we meet the characters, they all know each other and are all living together. Mm-hmm. And in this yes. film, we meet them on a train and they meet each other on a train and we see the backstory played out. So we have act one. Three characters meet. I love the opening scene yes. where she goes in. She sees them sleeping on the seats and she just sits right in between them with their legs just like right on the side of her thighs. And she starts drawing them after she studies them for a little bit. And she's analyzing them and focusing on them and being like, ooh, they are attractive. And then drawing her little characters. And then they wake up and she's asleep and they start doing the exact same thing. They start analyzing her. And they think like, oh, this beautiful woman. They wake up and Gary Cooper gets to actually do his French because he spoke fluent French, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. He learned that in schooling, so he got to show off in there. Maison Louis. Vous l'avez bien arrangé. Mais ce n'est pas sa tête, ce n'est pas son crâne. Tout je suis, c'est tout à fait ça. Son maxillaire supérieur n'est pas aussi proéminent. Au contraire, c'est ce qui réussit le plus. Exactly. And then finally, she just gives it up. She's like, oh, nuts. And then they realize that oh, she speaks English. It's definitely almost love at first sight right there with Jilda and Tom and George. Just, he's got his hand on her stocking covered foot right there. I love that mm. little detail right there with Gary Cooper's hand just like drooping onto there. It's like a woman. Huh? This is also the first scene where Lubitsch really starts employing the screen space device that he will use mm-hmm. relentlessly in this movie. Yes. Which is, he'll use a combination of dolly shots and pans, especially, what do you call it, dead axis dollies, pushes in and out. But here it's pans where, for example, there's a scene where Jilda leans forward and you establish a shot of her and the two men in the same frame. And then she leans back in an opportune moment, separating her from them. And so we start using pans to basically establish character configurations, especially romantic configurations. This starts to carry through. And by the time we get to, for example, the the next big set piece, which is the argument between George and Tom, where they bicker like a married couple. Yes. <laughs> um, and that, too, Lubitsch is very canny with the way he uses a set of dolly shots and pans In this case, he's using it to establish the disconnect between these two characters. Whenever two of the three characters are occupying a space, the space is designed for three. And, uh, you know, this relationship is designed for three. But when two of them are in the same space, there's always a distance. And the scene is a beautiful ballet. You have the big scene where they're at, you know, they both realize they've been sleeping with the same woman, which is established by that great line that Edward Everett Horton says. Immorality may be fun. But it isn't fun enough to take the place of 100% virtue and three square meals a day. And, you know, the first kind of act of this little scene Mm -hmm. is a shot of the corridor Mm -hmm. and they enter and exit to both their bedrooms, right? And then we go to a beautiful window shot Mm -hmm. and I want to also call out Hans Dreyer's sets. Oh, they're gorgeous. It might be my favorite of his production designs, mm-hmm. and that's saying a lot, yes. at least for Lubitsch. I think mm-hmm. maybe the Sternberg stuff is my favorite ever. But you have this beautiful, typical Lubitsch window shot in that there's a window in the frame and, the, you know, it's lovely fake Paris. We dolly in and 
Gary Cooper and Frederick Marsh do this little dance where yes. they are reconciling. Mm -hmm. And as they reconcile, they mirror each other's movements and establish themselves as interchangeable men. And the fact that they're wearing complementary tones, there's no colors, it's black and white, but the complementary tones establishes them as basically different flavors of the same man. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. Anyways, my rant is over. I apologize that I went or on. Or different versions of the same hat, you could also say also applies to Lewitz's treatment of women. He actually was very much wanting to give his female characters more agency than a lot of men, male directors would at that time. He gives this quote to Gilda and it's great. Maria Hopkins just delivers it so brilliantly. A thing happens to me that usually happens to men. You see, a man can meet two, three or even four women and fall in love with all of them. And then by a process of uh, interesting elimination, he's able to decide which one he prefers. But a woman must decide purely on instinct, guesswork, if she wants to be considered nice. Oh, it's quite all right for her to try on a hundred hats before she picks one out. Very but fine. But which support do you want, madame? And, all she, and she can reply with, both. And the film <laughs> does not scorn her for it, that falling in love and being in love with two men. And of course, this is the time where they had the gentleman's agreement, where it's like, we'll stay together. Gentleman's agreement. No sex. And you're just, wait, no sex? <laughs> They're saying this in a what? classic Hollywood movie? And they There's mean no it. no euphemisms? <laughs> no euphemisms. It is exactly what you expect. And of course, she breaks that, as she says later on. It's true we have a gentleman's agreement. But unfortunately, I am no gentleman. And breaks the contract, basically, with that. And the film doesn't shame her for it. After the production code, she would have been a fallen woman. She would be considered this woman who had no prospects, none of that. And she's shown to be that way. And Lubowitz, she was actually discussing this when he had interviews. And he said, why can't a woman actually be like this? And it's also more progressive than a lot of stuff that passes for audacity today, I guess mm -hmm. you could say with with Jilda, because I'm not even sure a lot of films today, you could say that where she's so ethically free in her sexuality with these two men, she would be considered a good person. And we could see that with other films that were inspired with this, A Band Apart, that ended up unhappily. And of course, Jules A. Jim, where mm -hmm. Jean Moreau's character is seen as a psychotic femme fatale in this relationship, breaking apart this friendship between two men. This film is kind of Lubitsch's last pre-code film, kind of not. The Merry Widow is a edge case. What I find interesting about this film is it's, it's something of a climax of, yes, Lubitsch's ability to mm -hmm. portray this type of mm -hmm. woman, especially in a mm -hmm. completely, I mean, in an essentially positive way. I mean, I was about to say non-judgmental, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. It's just Gilda in this film is its most potent dramatic agent in that she makes virtually all the decisions in the film. It is her decision to, for example, one, initiate this gentleman's agreement. It is her decision. Yes. <laughs> uh, to essentially break the agreement. She's the one who says the words that break it. It is also mm -hmm. her decision to break it again before yes. breaking it a third time to run off with Edward Everett Horton. And the only time that yes. the two boys in the film kind of grow mm -hmm. up and take responsibility for themselves is at the very ending when they basically rescue her from this yes. very boring lifestyle. Very boring, sexless lifestyle because they see the bed and they're just like, it's a single bed. She's been sleeping in here. 
nothing's been going on. And it's actually shown as a good thing that she's leaving that marriage because there is no sex, because virtue is not the end all be all. Because mm-hmm. Max's immorality will never beat virtue in three square meals a day, which of course Max brings up the virtue as part of the capitalist system right there. Mm-hmm. And they are the bohemian artistes. And there's this great line where he asks George, Gary Cooper's character, what's your yearly income? And he says, in round figures, zero. May I ask what you live on? Nothing. I survive by miracles. And of course, Max looks down upon that, but the film finds it charming. With the whole gentleman's agreement, you know that the sex is going to happen. Like he's giving you a little hint already in there because that's just Lewis' touch where he's giving you information that the characters don't know. It's like a wink and a nod to the audience that he's giving. I think, too, what I find fascinating about this film is the Hayes Code era is often credited Mm -hmm. with giving filmmakers the ability to do that wink and nod by enforcing it, right? Mm -hmm. By saying, hey, you have to use euphemism. There's been a sort of uh, romanticized view of it. To me, Designed for Living, more than any other film, except for maybe Trouble in Paradise, puts the lie to that where you have the stuff like no sex and you have... You've been making love to Jilda, that sort of thing. But at the same time, this dialogue is full of euphemism. It's full of double entendres. Like the Lady Godiva, where she says, I hated your Lady Lady Godiva with George. And then Tom just said, A bicycle seat is a little hard on Lady Godiva's historical background. Shut up. I love the Tarzan one where George says, You better go, Jilda, to Tarzan. (laughs) It's very obviously him implying that he should leave so he can, like, relieve himself um, yes. on his own. <laughs> Jilda, I'm a pretty gloomy guy tonight. I have an idea I'm going to be rather bad company. Why don't you go out to a, a movie or something? Tarzan's playing at the Adelphi Theater. Everything seems different, doesn't it? You better go, Jilda. Tarzan. I, I remember me and Will watched that for the first time and we had to pause the movie. We were mm-hmm. laughing so hard and just and a lot of that <laughs> was because of, of like the amazement of, oh, my God, that's in this. But the film yes. was full of stuff like that or even the plant they give Max, mm-hmm. the very phallic plant. And to me, what the shows is that, I mean, inference and double entendres and sophistication in big air quotes didn't need the code to exist. No. They really didn't. Sometimes it's better that way. I think Molly Haskell brought that up a bit from reference to rape, where she was discussing that where the Hayes Code dropped and then they didn't really know how to make double entendres and codes. And during the Hayes Code, women couldn't just be sex objects. They actually had to be career women. And this one is pre-code. And Jilda is known for her sexual appetites for two men. But that's not her only attribute. She's Mm -hmm. also a character artist and she's stuck between trying to survive and thinking of if I go with these two men, I won't have security because because I'll be a starving artist like them. And if I go with Max, he is a virtuous being. And that's part of that capitalist system right there is the virtue. So she has to choose and decide. And she decides, no, I don't want to be virtuous and have three square meals a day. I want to be passionate about my art and passionate with my boys about their art, too, with the playwright and the painter. It feels like in the pre-code era, you were allowed more bandwidth 
right? Where Jilda can be a character in some ways defined by her sexual appetites, but so are George and Tom. And not only that, you know, she's also the matron of the arts. She's also, by a wide margin, the smartest character we see on screen. Yeah, she's the driving force behind er almost every major plot beat in the film. The fact that not having rigorous censorship apparatus, I mean, there's still a censorship Mm -hmm. apparatus. It just wasn't rigorous. There was, there was, yeah, (laughs) yes. I mean, a lot of like wonderful moments. Like, I love the scene where George like briefly considers pimping himself out to the local laundromat. How old is the laundress? She's about 45. Uh, young 45. It really sounds like someone who's really hungry, trying to convince themselves to eat like a mediocre meal or something. It, like that's the casualness yes. of this. And the fact that that's just a beat that comes and goes, it really adds the tapestry of the of, of this movie's depiction of the interplay between poverty and sex in this case and class. The film's a kind of not-so-subtle rags-to-riches story. It is, I think, worth noting how impoverished our lead characters are at the beginning. I mean, especially Tom and George. Jilda kind of escapes at first by, you know, being friends with, with an advertising executive. But Tom and George, they begin the film living in the most cartoonishly, again, Hans Dreyer's work here is amazing. Just this hilarious yes. parody of a bat pad. Uh, I know. <laughs> I first watched this film when I was actually, like, living with two roommates. I don't think we've ever related to anything so much as when they're like hastily cleaning up their their apartment and like sweeping all their stuff under the rug when a yes. guest comes over. We feel represented. Oh, man. Starving artists and starving college students. I feel seen. Yeah. And it's fascinating because in the play, the playwright is already very successful because yes. it takes place in a lot in this one room that is very ornate to benefit the upper echelons of these characters and Lubowitz made sure to have them start out very poor and surviving on miracles. They basically become wealthy and aristocratic Mm -hmm. because of, it is implied, because of their romantic tension with Jilda. They become great and successful artists after she enters the mix. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the, the relationship is essentially an unstable chemical reaction that creates a lot of energy and that energy is transferred to their art, which is then transferred to their success, which is what propels them all from literal rags to literal riches. And part of why I was really excited to have you on this episode was I think this film kind of bounces off the Chaplin episode in interesting ways because yes, it does. they're both rags to riches stories, except in this case, I mean, this film is made at the height of the Depressionist. And yet this is a story of three people who start out with nothing and end up with absurd amounts of wealth, really. And they do so basically by being iconoclastic in their relationship and that relationship giving them essentially tension and conflict through which they can glean inspiration. Exactly. And it is part of that escapist subgenre that was very popular in the Depression era, especially with like Elijah Rogers and Fred Astaire stories where they were very much these stories of upper class people being successful and saying, you can be successful, too. Mm. And in this version, it actually goes deeper into the social mores and it's looking at the ideas of what rigorous standards we have to live with for that. And it's also fascinating you brought that Jilda is the one who ties it all together because it was because of Jilda's connections that mm-hmm. they end up getting famous and they had, well, they end up getting becoming successful and having their art being appreciated. I will say that I think Joseph McBride doesn't really focus as much as that, as he says, he says more, which is more invested in relationships than in addressing social issues. But I think this is addressing a social issue right here. Oh, yeah. It's addressing the ideas of monogamy and the ideas that you have to be with this one man and you have to be in this perfect 
heteronormative relationship. And I think he's addressing that right there and the addressing the idea that if you're part of the wealthy class, you have to be by these very Christian, very heteronormative standards even if he didn't intend that to be. The film really posits these two kind of opposing forces, right? Max represents the forces of ordered, structured society. George, Tom, and Jill that are fundamentally disordered people in the sense of they are disrupting the order of society with their relationship. And that disruption gives them power. And I mean, this film did not land with depression era audiences. It lost money. But for those for whom it landed, it feels like this film is a great to hell with society movie. It ends with them running away from polite society for good, maybe. And I'm sure a lot of audience were like, why would she do that? Even though there's no sex in the relationship, he has money. They would see that as very careless because there are so many people in the country starving. They couldn't find work. And Jilda does that. But because the witch ends it like that, it ends up actually lasting longer than a bunch of other escapist films at that time that it still resonates with us. I think of that line that she says to end the relationship with Max. She says, I'm sick of being a trademarked Mary to a slogan. <laughs> I love that line because it's very much hinted that Max only married her to make his advertising look better and to bring him wealth and money. And she even says, I've done my part. I've gotten you your extra money and I you don't need me anymore. Max can only perceive of everything for him gets boiled down to a slogan too. three square meals a day, mm-hmm. 100% virtue. That's something you'd see on an ad. Fighter. Yes, you really good. <laughs> Think of the ending, right? Where he is such a company man mm-hmm. that he would sacrifice his relationship just mm-hmm. to curry favor with Eagle Bauer. He doesn't even go after her when she's running off, when she's just leaving him. It's a great panning shot of her just walking out the door and he's still on the phone with Eagle Bauer because corporate interest is a lot more than that. They're rescuing Jilda from the horrible fate of being a trophy wife to that guy. I love his introduction, Max's introduction, because she said, Max, have you ever felt your brain catch fire and a curious, dreadful thing go right through your body, down, down to your very toes and leave you with your ears ringing? That's abnormal. I hesitate to call forward too much, but that scene especially reminded me hugely of Clooney Brown, where yes. the lead character in that has very similar moments and with a similar blocking, mm-hmm. actually, where she's lying on a bed. Yes. And she, too, is, again, this disruptive figure, right? She she disrupts society and therefore has to be cast out and uh, moves to America. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although, interestingly, I guess moving to America has totally separate functions in this. Yeah, because it's because it's mostly Paris in this movie. In this, moving back to America from Paris is like a retreat for Jilda. But in Clooney Brown, yes. it's a free society where they're free to make their yes. fortune on book sales. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, I feel like Ernest Lubitsch would love the idea of people traveling across the country and traveling away from that, from the stifling society to find their home, find their goal, because he was, of course, German born. And I feel this film especially was inspired, the ending especially was inspired by the free love of the Weimar era that he lived in before the Nazis took over. Yeah. And this is the film that by far gets brought up the most as like, oh, this transgressive (laughs) Berlin film. I mean, his Berlin films often get outrageously transgressive in so many ways. Yes, they do. I mean, this is kind of the last big hurrah for for this specific type of transgressiveness in his filmography. The most remarkable thing about it, 
is how transgressive it is. And I mean that as both mm-hmm. a heavy praise and also a slight critique. And of course, it was so transgressive. It was banned the year after it came out when it was going through the production code with Joseph Breen at the head, who Joseph Breen was also virulently anti-Semitic, which put a target on Lubwitch's back unfairly. Some people mm-hmm. have conjectured, considering that guy actually wanted Hollywood to work with Nazis. He was in contact with the Nazi representative. So Joseph Breen's a bad guy. We don't like Joseph Breen whatsoever. And then they were discussing it at Universal where they're discussing, do we want to remake this film in 1940? And they said, heck no, what are you talking about? And then 1944, it came up again for a remake. And they said, no, there's no way we can get this past. No. You're saying this film didn't get remade in the in the code era. Wow. <laughs> How shocking. Wow. Shocking. I can't think of another film that's as much of a standard bearer for pre-code naughtiness as this one, even though I think there's naughtier films. Probably Shirley Temple, William Faulkner's written one, maybe. And the one that Hedy Lamar was in where she was topless. That was Ecstasy. German, though. That wasn't Hollywood. But yeah, Ecstasy, that's right. Claudette Colbert and Cleopatra, that version, maybe. Where she's in the milk bath. And there's so many violent ones too. Like um, all the crime films mm-hmm. get really outrageous. But Oh, they do Scarface, yeah. This film just, the elevator pitch, inspires such a what that <laughs> Design for Living, and I it pains me to say this, it's the only film in this podcast where I feel like I am, I'm, I'm a little bearish on it in comparison to its reputation. If I'm looking at it from the point of view of like, films from the 40s even uh, and comparing it to those yeah it's underappreciated but in comparison to other Lubitsch films every time I watch it I have this reaction of, of oh that was a very good film I think The Merry Widow and Trouble in Paradise and even The Smiling Lieutenant I prefer substantially <laughs> oh, I can understand Trouble in Paradise especially that movie's a masterpiece so. oh yeah and Design for Living is often seen it brought up as like, oh, that's the other masterpiece or the other truly great pre-code film he did. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think that the fact that the elevator pitch for this film, the fact that its concept is so infamous, kind of Mm -hmm. gives it a slightly undue focus from, Mm. I'm not going to say mainstream because no one mainstream cares about any of these movies. (laughs) I think that this film is, if anything, the only film in this entire show where I'd say, you know what, it's a little not overrated. I don't like to use that word, <laughs> but maybe slightly as much as I really admire certain elements of Lubitsch's camera direction. This, it doesn't have the same stylistic flow as mm-hmm. trouble in paradise and the merry widow. It doesn't mm-hmm. carry me along. There's stretches where mm-hmm. I feel this is working pretty well. It's missing a bit of the touch. Um, the first third I love. I think the first third's incredible. I agree with that. But overall, it feels like it isn't Lubitsch really stretching his muscles mm-hmm. aesthetically in the same way he would do before and after. Other films suffer in comparison because The Merry Widow is tougher to pitch to people. As like, hey, Merry Widow, uh, do you like Franz Lehar? That's mm? a bit of a tough sell. I, I think that it's the only time in this whole show where I'm going to be able to say, yeah, I'm not as crazy about this film as others. <laughs> I like a lot. I could see that. I mean, but he was working a lot and he was making so many films like oh my at gosh, fast yes. pace. So there is always going to be a little bit of sloppiness when you work in that. And that's not even including the fact that I think he was already in contention to be the head of Paramount at that time, which he then was in 1935. Mm-hmm. And it was not a very good tenure. He had a lot on his plate. But I can understand why people have heralded as a masterpiece because it was considered by a lot of critics at the time as what are you doing? Why are you changing yeah. so much from Noel Cowell's play? And it was 
pretty much panned. The only reason why it broke even is because the cast was so popular. Frederick March just won an Oscar for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Marion Hopkins was just in Trouble in Paradise. She was so popular. And Gary Cooper was also very popular. I mean, we mentioned that this was the height of the Depression, how that influenced the subject matter. It also influenced the box office. Most films at this point were losing money. Paramount was on death's door for a lot of this. One question that you know, has been posited a few times is how the heck did Lubitsch keep getting essentially money to make movies when his movies were all losing money? And the answer is basically that at this point, it was tough not to lose money uh, no. on these movies. <laughs> <laughs> and he found himself downsizing. Like this was a much lower budgeted film mm-hmm. than yes, he was used was. to. And you can tell, I mean, other than Hans Dreyer's incredible sets, there's only like four sets in this movie. I can't get enough of that fake Paris window that they often look out of. And like the little, you know, cardboard cutout backdrop. I mean, it is so stylish and their house looks like a German expressionist house. (laughs) I think another element that's surprising to see is how well Gary Cooper fits into a Lubowitz picture because you don't really see that. You see him as this rough and tough guy and he was playing a lot of these roles. Mm -hmm. Of course, he got his start in Western films and and one of his most famous films, he was a sheriff in High Noon. And then I think this is the film that propelled him to the point where he could be a romantic lead and that led to Mr. Deeds, that led to Love in the Afternoon, which I feel has been unfairly maligned because I think it's a fantastic film and it also has Maurice Chevalier in it and it's got Audrey Hep and Gary Cooper. And of course, people were upset about Gary Cooper being the love interest of Audrey because there was a 20 some year age gap in real life. He also looks older than he is even. He does. He does. I think his eyes also really affect it with with his ice blue eyes that you could even tell like they're mesmerizing to look at. And he almost looks like he has silver hair. In this movie, he was supposedly 32 when he filmed this. I was like, that man is 32. Yeah, Cooper in this, I have mixed feelings on in the sense of He clearly is learning the craft of doing this talking acting thing. Yes. And being and for being a romantic comedic lead. And yet he lands a ton of like he has so many funny little moments. And I think his kind of awkwardness plays into the character very well. And throughout the film, he gets progressively more comfortable. And so does his character in his own skin. You know, his character is a childish buffoon who grows up. Yes, it really is. And he's a good fit. Love in the Afternoon, I genuinely, I really struggle with him, partially because of the age, but I also think partially because he doesn't have the right chemistry for what that movie, I think, calls of that character, maybe. He's- Which is interesting, because apparently he and Audrey got along so well on the set, she was one of the invited guests to his funeral, because they were so, they were so close. So yeah, I think she took that that consideration in mind for charade she was going to be the aggressor towards Cary Grant instead of Cary Grant trying to be aggressively flirting with her yeah but of course Frederick March is just great top notch he's one of our best actors best years of our lives has been his best performance Mm. in my opinion he could do no wrong he's just so charming he's just so sweet as Tom even though he's like he's not the most attractive guy compared to Gary Cooper because Gary Cooper is just oh my god you are amazing looking and Frederick March just actually has just so much charm to him that you could see why she would struggle between Gary and him you can believe it Their similarities and contrasts are very well calibrated where you can see how they're best friends and you can see how they're both egotistical artists. Yes. But Frederick March's general demeanor is far more cosmopolitan. He's the only character of the three that kind of sort of resembles the Ben Hecht version a little bit. Cooper, though, there's no resemblance between his character and his equivalent in the in the Noel Coward Cooper in this. He's going to come back in Bluebeard's eighth wife to, I think, lesser effect. Lubitsch is very good. 
generally, even with actors who are still maybe learning the craft a bit. He got a masterful performance out of Jack Benny somehow. So. Yeah, <laughs> he did. And to be or not to be, he's fantastic. And you can really tell if it's directing style, especially come come through and actors like Cooper and this and Benny and that, where the pattern of their dialogue, the way they move about the room, the rhythm that exists between their movements and their dialogue is so Lubitsch. You can feel him coming through those performances in very specific ways. It's almost like everyone is doing a Lubitsch impression, except for Jimmy Stewart. Although, you know what? I will say one thing in Design for Living's favor. Mm -hmm. I think this might be my favorite Miriam Hopkins performance. In all three films, she's lovely, Mm -hmm. amazing. But in this one, she's given so much of an opportunity to shade Mm -hmm. her character in offhanded ways that she never was able to. There's no better word for it. Her character is really deep in this. (laughs) It really is. Well, Joseph McBride, I remember he did write that he felt that he kind of missed the mark just slightly because she says, I will be the mother here of the arts and just taking care of you. Then he's like, oh, no, you push back on that feminist progressive idea. But it's still. I do think that even framing it like that, the way McBride does, is a little maybe a bit presentist. Lubitsch was not a progressive in the sense of, you know, the two of us are progressives, right? Yeah, no, of course not. His actual political beliefs are still a little obscure, but clearly he was down with a lot of stuff. But he was still a progressive circa 1933. The tenor of that progressiveness, the assumptions about natural gender relations were not what they are now, I mean, at least among us progressives. Uh, criticism of the idea of her being the mother of the art seems to me almost like to slightly miss the forest for the trees of, like you mentioned, she's repurposing her own feminine matronly role in a very, very unfamiliar context that kind of makes it alien. I think I'm just stealing thoughts from William Paul, probably. But she alienates this idea of motherhood in a context where it's patently ridiculous. There's no children involved here. And there's no Oedipal complex going on here. They are There is no way you should see her as the mother here because she is sleeping with both of them. So let's not think about it that way. To kind of tie off the ending. At the ending, they never actually say no sex, right? When they reestablish their new society, they have, uh, they waffle a bit on the no sex part. So I always read that ending as maybe they're going to just accept the sex part. And, you know, their relationship will always have that tension. This is a fundamentally unstable life. And they have the clasp of the three hands together, together, together. They just love each other so much. The guys love each other so much. They're just like, why are we doing this to each other? Which is something I love. They're just hardly there's any infighting at all, which is what I love. And what it is, it's not violently aggressive. It's more conversational. And that's just something very empowering to watch as well, where you see these guys and it's like, we don't need to have our fists to settle these conflicts. We can use our words. And there's one punch. (laughs) There's one punch throughout the whole film. Lubitsch tends to take his violence Outside of like his really body Berlin stuff, um, he takes his violence very seriously, even in his comedies where violence is a rupture. But in this case, it's almost like a John Ford style punch where yes. a punch is thrown between two men mm-hmm. and the character being punched is like admits later. That was a well-executed punch, essentially. Yes. <laughs> and it feels almost Fordian in, in the sense of this little act of violence is actually like a small bonding a thing between these two men and yeah, that instigates them kind of coming together again. Are, are there any little things you want to hide this conversation off with? There's a reason this film is still recognized, even if it's not a masterpiece, because yeah, it's not as good as To Be or Not To Be or Shop Around the Corner or Trouble in Paradise, Merry Widow or Ninochka, but it still 
highly regarded for good reason. Nothing else has been made like it before or since. You know, as a society, we still really struggle with depicting unusual romantic configurations. We very much do. We all think we're all so much more mm-hmm. progressive than they were 90 years ago. But, you know, yeah. this film manages to do it with far less hand wringing than virtually any film I've, I've seen in the modern era that does it. There's exactly. I know I'm contradicting myself when I was critical of the film, but that's what makes this film so essential is that <laughs> at the very, very least, it's a essential document of a what if scenario for what if pop culture was basically more open minded. Exactly. What if we were more open minded about what a relationship can be? It doesn't have to just be a man or a woman or two women or two men. You know, you form your own little society. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, more Design for Living with Jordan Fish, Ray Tintori, and Zed Bell. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Sophia Yoon was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 